All right, good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Well here at STSA. My name is Father Anthony. It's great to see all of you here today. We are continuing our series, No Big Deal. We're in part three, and if you missed any of the first two parts, you're welcome to go onto our website, stsa.church, and click on The Well, and there you can get caught up as to what we're talking about. And what we're talking about, just kind of quickly to recap, is we're talking about the no big deal sins of life. And we're talking about some of those sins that we kind of look at. We don't even call them sins. We call them what? What do we say? Those aren't really sins. They are struggles. We call them issues. We call them weaknesses. We call them anything except sin because we're not really attacking them and addressing them as a harmful thing that we need to get rid of out of our life. So instead, we say we struggle, we have issues, we have weakness, but the truth of the matter is we do absolutely nothing about them. These have become the acceptable sins of society, the acceptable sins of Christianity, and we just let them and leave them inside. What we're talking about here in this series is they may be more dangerous than we realize. Okay, the image I drew in week one is that a spaceship that is going a billion miles into outer space has to be very precise in its target. And if it's off by just one degree, just one degree over the course of a million miles is going to get it into major trouble. And we in this life, we have a target, and that target is Christ, all right? The Son of God who became man. He's the target. And if we're just a little bit off from him, over the course of our life could get us into big problems. So last week, we talked about complaining. And we saw how there were some professional complainers in the Old Testament called the Israelites and how they complained about everything. And we talked about how last week that complaining, God takes it personally, so therefore we need to take it seriously, because complaining is missing the mark. Yeah, it might just be a little bit. It's not like murdering. It's not like adultery. But if it's missing the mark over the course of our life, it's going to get us into trouble. And I don't know about you, okay, for those who are, this series, we're not just talking here on Sundays. We're also doing life groups, all right? Raise your hand. How many people are participating in life groups? Signed up for life group. Fantastic. Very good. If you have not participated in a life group or you're not participating in this particular round, you're missing out. Because one of the things that we're doing is talking about this subject here on Sundays. We're talking about it in our life groups when we meet Monday through, fr Monday through Saturday or, or Sunday all week, okay, outside of here. And what I have discovered, okay, y'all life group people tell me if this is the same thing that you've discovered. What I have discovered, two weeks in a row now, two weeks in a row, it's time for my life group. I'm in the Thursday night group. Shout out to the Annandale group. Annandale group, any Annandale group? All right, Annandale group, very good. All right, some people, you're not in the Annandale group, but that's okay, okay? You want to be Annandale group. You just, just raise his hand. Like someone say, all right, there you go. All right, that's fine. We welcome you in our group. Limitless acceptance. Second week in a row, second week in a row is Thursday night. It's time for life group. I have not 1,000 things, 10,000 things more important, more urgent, and the thoughts in my head are, I don't have time this week. I don't have, and I'm just going to skip, and I'm busy, and I have important things. I don't have time, and I feel the devil keeps putting out, and I don't have time. I don't have time, and I legitimately don't have time. But then I say, you know what? Like, I'm the priest of the church. Like, if the priest skips the life group, that's not going to be a good situation. So I go. And then I end up going home and say, thank you, God, that I didn't listen to the enemy. Thank you, God, that I didn't listen to the devil. For the second week in a row, I went tired, and I went kind of, uh, but I left, uh. And even someone in our life group said it, and I liked it so much, I went home and wrote down. We were, talk we were going around in a circle because we were talking about complaining. So we were saying, what are you grateful for? So someone said, I'm grateful for this circle. I'm grateful for this circle where we can come together. And he said something to the effect of something magical happens or something great happens when we sit around in a circle in a small group, 10 of us, I think it was that night, 10 of us sit in a small circle and we discuss things. And I could not agree more with that assessment, that it's great that we come here together on Sunday and we sit in rows and this is how we learn. But how we grow is when we get in circles and we discuss face to face. 
And I, I stand up there and I say, guys, this is my struggle. And you stand there and we pray for each other and we talk about strategies and we just, we're just there for one another. So let me encourage you, if you're in a life group, okay, don't let that little voice of the enemy, because I know it creeps into everyone's head, that you're too busy, that you don't have time, there's more important things. Believe me, every time I hear that voice, I'm so thankful that I don't listen. So that was week one, we talked about complaining. This week, we're gonna talk about another little sin. Oh, but actually I wanna say something before I left the complaining topic. Several people came to me this past week, and y'all can just nod your heads if you agree, that after we talked about complaining, how many people never realized how much you complain on a day-to-day -day basis? How many people after last week, because we said in life group that we're gonna declare a complaint-free week, all right, that was our goal last week. We're gonna, no complaining, that was our, our, our group challenge. And how many people realized, I didn't realize how much I complain on a day-to-day -day basis. And someone actually told me this last night. Someone said, ever since that challenge that they started doing from Thursday, and they told me on Saturday, so what, 48 hours. They said from Thursday to Saturday, after taking this no complaint challenge, I'm not gonna complain. They said it made me a happier person. They said my work circumstances is exactly the same. My home situation is exactly the same. But the fact that I stopped complaining, somehow I have greater peace about the exact same circumstances. Complaining is a bigger deal than we may realize. Today we're gonna to do another one of those no big deal sins. And today's sin is criticizing. And let me tell you right off the bat, we're gonna talk about criticizing and I can speak very passionately about this because I am an expert on the subject. Complaining, um, I'm pretty, I'm okay on complaining. I tend not to complain too much, but criticize, that's my area of expertise. All right, so we're gonna talk about criticism here today, and if it's a big deal or not a big deal. Now, let me just start off by saying, I say criticism, and I'm not talking about the constructive kind. I'm not talking about the like 180 degree feedback, okay, or the 360 feedback at work. I'm not talking about the kind that wants to help and improve when asked for advice. I'm talking about the nagging kind. I'm talking about the nitpicking kind. I'm talking about the kind that thinks you drive too fast, and tells you where you're driving too slow and you're too far to the left or you're too close to the right and tells you about it every single time they're in shotgun. I'm talking about the kind of criticizing the first thing you do in the morning is check the dishwasher and tell you that you did not load it properly, that everyone knows the plates should all face the same direction and you can't just put them haphazardly. I'm talking about the kind of criticism that reminds you on a weekly basis that your meatloaf is not like his mother's meatloaf. My very first sermon that I ever gave, even before I was a priest, actually, I looked at the calendar, I was gonna tell this story, and then I looked at the calendar and discovered it's actually 17 years ago to the day. October 28, 2001, I wasn't even a priest at the time. I was nominated to be a priest and I was gonna be ordained shortly thereafter. 2001, some of you are like, what's 2001, okay? 2001 was not too long ago for some of us, but my first sermon. I was just a young deacon, newly married. I didn't know my left hand from my right hand, and they just kind of threw me up there and put me up there for the sermon. And the ironic thing, the ironic thing, it was a message on judging. That's what I preached. But the ironic thing is that nobody was listening to the sermon because all they were doing was judging whether or not I'd be a good priest. Because they had nominated me to see, we're gonna ordain this guy. So they figured the best way to figure out whether or not he's any good Throw him up there on stage, throw him in the middle of the ocean, and let's see what he does. And nobody listened to a word I said because they were all judging me. Irony of ironies. Anyway, I did my best. Probably wasn't the smoothest sermon. I don't remember anything that I said, to be honest, but I got through. And after the sermon, 
for sure, many people, you know, good job, you're so proud of you, like, you know, encouraged me and told me all kinds of wonderful things. But I don't remember any of those things. I only remember one thing after that sermon. I remember that lady. You know that lady. Every church growing up had that lady. She sat in the front row. Okay, sorry to all you right here. Okay, none of you guys, not this church, okay? She sat in the front row. She was there early. She stayed late. She had eyes like a hawk. And she, if you did anything wrong, she was there to pounce on you. And anytime you pray, like it's no use trying to pray against this woman or trying to get rid of her. If you strike her down, the devil will raise two up in her place. Every church has this lady. Oh, she looked like she's getting this. <laughs> she here now. <laughs> this lady, after the sermon, made a beeline to me. And she started by telling me, that was nice. Translation, I hated it. You made some good points. Not really. But I have just one piece of advice for you. And then she told me 10 things. And she proceeded to tell me I talk too fast, that I move too much, and my English is too difficult. And she concluded that pontification by basically telling me something, something to the effect of, hey, don't quit your day job. I got tons of positive feedback after that day. I don't remember any one of them. I remember the lady. And thankfully, at least I hope you would say thankfully, I didn't listen to her. Thankfully, I didn't take her criticism to heart. I remember it like it was yesterday. Again, I'm sure a hundred people encouraged me. I don't remember them. I remember that one thing that one lady said, but thanks be to God that I didn't listen to her or else I might not have made it this far. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21 tells something that we know. I just told you in that story and you know it and I know it. Everyone knows it. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. This thing opens and what comes out can kill or can give life. Solomon says it a slightly different way in Proverbs 15, four. He says, the soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. Today, I'm gonna to ask you the question, and I'm gonna ask you to be honest. Do your words bring life or death? Are your words soothing, ointment, healing? Or are they crushing? Let's talk about your marriage. Do your words bring intimacy and closeness into your marriage? Husbands, wives, like the words that come out of your mouth help build the bond between you and your spouse or they further increase the distance. The distance that you complain about, but your words are the ones that are causing it. Parents, your words build your kids' self-esteem and make them feel like, yeah, you know what? I can do this. Like I, I can get good grades. I can be successful. Like I can be a man, I can be a, a lady. Like I can do this. Or your words are the exact opposite. And careful here, parents. When I talk about parents with kids, I'm talking about this. This still applies to your kids, even if they have kids of their own. Because sometimes it's the words of our parents, even when we ourselves are parents, that still crush the spirit. How about in your office? 
You have a backbiting, gossiping, horrible work environment. And are your words increasing the negative or are they bringing healing? Are your words helping to get rid of that situation you complain about? Or are your words doing the exact opposite and contributing to the problem? You see, when it comes to criticism, it is easy to justify. It is easy to justify and say, you know what? I wouldn't criticize if they weren't, and then you fill in the blank, you justify it. I wouldn't criticize if he was more responsible. I wouldn't criticize if she wasn't so lazy. I wouldn't, so, I wouldn't criticize if he wasn't so stupid. I wouldn't criticize if they didn't have this problem, if he loaded the dishwasher the right way. I wouldn't criticize, they give me no choice. Look here. I just said, I'm an expert on the criticism thing. And I can justify it. You know, one of the things that uh, my wife, I tell my wife that I have a spiritual gift. Okay? You guys know that I have a spiritual gift? It's the spiritual gift of process improvement. Which means I can watch anybody do anything and tell them how to do it better. My wife can attest to that. I can watch anybody do anything and tell them how to do it better. I'm an expert on criticism. Yes, my services are available for free if anyone wants it. Okay. And as good as my intentions may be, and your intentions may be, and as much as we want them to help fulfill their potential, we want them to be the best they can be, we want to help them be more efficient with their time, the truth of the matter is, is your words, regardless of the intentions behind them, are either giving life or bringing death, are either soothing or crushing. Or we'll take this as kind of our, our key verse for today. Proverbs 12, 18. All these verses say the same thing in different ways. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. I'll just ask some questions and you answer whatever you want in your head. I'll just ask some questions. How many marriages do you think are destroyed by piercing words? How many marriages today that are growing further and further apart, how many, how many of those do you think the reason, the root cause of it is piercing words that cut, that cut self-esteem, that cut confidence, that cut intimacy. How many father-son or mother-daughter relationships have a wedge between them because of reckless words? Reckless words uttered in the name of, I want the best for them, or I want them to fulfill their potential. How many relationships have a wedge which unfortunately, the older the, the older the people are in it, the more sometimes irreparable it may be. How many dreams, like God-ordained dreams, do you think are shattered by piercing reckless words? I'm telling you, October 28, 2001, some reckless words, almost. I'm not saying I'm the answer to everyone's prayers or anything like that. But what I'm saying, some reckless words almost derailed me. Your words either are swords that cut or medicine that heals. They give life or they take life. Today I'm asking you, which one are you? There's two options in life when it comes to your words. We're going to talk about the kind of the two extremes, and hopefully you're neither 100% one or 100%, well, hopefully you're 100% the other, but we're going to draw the two extremes, and everywhere's kind of some, everyone's kind of somewhere along the way, and I want to push you more and more in this direction. Let's start with the negative extreme. Your words, every time you open your mouth, option number one is you're a fault finder. You're a fault finder. You're a person who points out the wrong things, the faults, and let me tell you, of the two options, the fault finder is the easier of the two. If you want to put little effort into your life, this is the way to go. 
Because this will always be, it'll always be easier to pick apart what's wrong with your spouse than to focus on what's right with them. It'll always be easier to tell your kids where they're lacking than point out where they are successful. It'll always be easier to see what's wrong in the office, what's wrong with your boss, that she doesn't know what she's doing. It'll always be easier to find fault than it is to focus on the good. For example, I heard this one recently. Someone told me, this is the list of things, and I'm changing, I won't say exactly, but someone told me that about his spouse, okay, I don't like the way she talks. I don't like the way she walks. I don't like her way she dresses. Her jokes aren't funny. She chews too loud and she breathes in an obnoxious manner. She breathes in an obnoxious manner. Now, some of you are laughing, but realize that there are some people out there that may have had this discussion that have a strategy on how to breathe appropriately and inappropriately. It will always be easier to find fault versus to look at the positive. It's always easy to see what my boss is not good at. Oh, she doesn't know how to run a meeting. Oh, he's so incompetent. Oh, oh, it's always easy to look at other people, how they parent their kids. Oh, that's how they're gonna parent their kids. You might as well just reserve a spot in the prison from now. Just call them and reserve a spot for your kid from right now. That's how you're gonna parent. It's always easy to see what other people are doing wrong versus to focus on what they're doing right. Who is the original, the master fault finder himself? Satan, look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. Of all the names that the scripture gives to the devil, this is one of them right here. It says, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Did you know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren? He is constantly accusing to you and about you. Like he is always in your ear telling you how bad you are, but that's not it. That's not, that's just the least of it. He's always in God's ear, saying, God, he's too bad. They're no good. And you see what he did? And pointing out our faults, like he's always the accuser and fault finder to tell you how bad you are and how little you got good going on in your life. In the Bible, in the New Testament, we see the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they, they were the fault finders. They were the guys who were saying, Jesus, your disciples didn't wash their hands the right way. They didn't wash 20 seconds with the soap. And uh, you, you, you did the miracle on the wrong day. They caught you. It's a Sunday. You're supposed to do it on uh, it's a Saturday. You're supposed to do it on Friday. Everyone knows that. Like they were the fault finders and they could never see what Jesus was doing, how he was bringing salvation, how he was bringing the good news of the gospel. They could never see the good news of the gospel because they're so focused on finding the fault. Where does fault finding come from? I'll share my opinion. I'm sure there's many sources, but I'll tell you the two that I believe are most common. And I'll go through these kind of quickly because it's we could spend all day and all night on these topics, but I'll just go through them quickly. I think number one, fault finding comes from being uninformed. It comes from being uninformed. It comes from being ignorant. The further you are from a person or a subject, the easier it is to criticize. Like here I am standing here, okay? The closer you are to a person versus all the way in that back right corner over there. Like I can look at the people in the back right corner Okay, and it's easy to criticize from a distance because I don't know what's going on over there. But the closer you are to a person, the more difficult it is to actually criticize them. It's easy from a distance, say, oh, why the church did that? The church, why they make that decision? They don't know what they're talking about. From a distance, you don't know any of the details behind the decision. Easy to sit there and watch sports. We do this all the time. Why the coach called that play? I don't know what he's talking about. As if you, who played Little League Baseball at T-ball, okay, all of a sudden you're qualified to manage the World Series, okay? It's easy to look at, hmm, let me think of an example. People in the government, in politics, 
And it's easy to read a headline on CNN or a tweet from your friend who blogs and say, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Or that letter, then that's the reason the country's going down the toilet. It's easy from a distance, we don't know any details, to criticize. But the closer you get to something, the harder it is. For example, parents. You remember before we had kids? Remember before we had kids? And you would go to the grocery store and you would see the parents with the two-year-olds. And we judge them and we criticize them. And again, this is what's wrong with America today. No discipline, no respect. And this is what's wrong. Well, you know what happened to all of us magically? We had two-year-olds of our own. And we took them to the grocery store. And then we stopped judging parents of two-year-olds in the grocery store. Because when you have two-year-olds of your own and you're in a grocery store, you automatically realize the principle of you don't negotiate with terrorists. That is not the time nor the place. Because your goal in a grocery store with a two-year-old is not to teach them right and wrong. It's to get out with as minimal loss of life as possible. Make it back into the cart with my dignity intact and make it to the car. If it costs me a candy bar, if it costs me cash, if it costs me a pony, if it costs me a Porsche, whatever it takes to get my kid back in the car before all these people judge me as the worst parent in the whole wide world. It's easy to judge when we're uninformed from a distance. The second reason we judge, we criticize because we're insecure. And I could spend a whole topic, I could spend a whole day on talking about insecurity, but it's not really our topic here for today, but let's just talk about it this way. We think when we're insecure that my criticism will make me look smarter. We think, I feel bad about myself, I don't think I'm good enough. So what I do is I say, oh, that person, oh, they have no idea what they're doing. Oh, my manager has no idea how to run a meeting, okay? And let me tell you how they should have run the meeting. Oh, these people, they think they know how to run a church, they have no idea how to run a church. We think we're making ourselves look smarter, but the reality is you only look dumber and you only look smaller for being so critical about the subject. And I'll prove this to you. I'll prove this to you that you, when you're insecure and you criticize, you make yourself look worse. Has anyone, raise your hand, if you have ever, has anyone met a critical person that they've said, I wanna be just like them? Has anyone ever met someone who is hypercritical and said, you know what? I want my daughter to marry someone just like that. I wish my son was more like that guy. In fact, speaking of critical women, in fact, speaking of critical women, I'm gonna show you a verse from the Bible that the men will love, the women will hate, but you can't criticize me because we're talking about criticism. And I'm gonna show you this verse from the Bible, and I'm asking all the men to listen carefully to me. This is very important instructions. When I show you the verse, you will look straight ahead. You will not look to the left or to the right. You will certainly not elbow, you will not head nod or go, hmm. Doing any of those will risk your life and mine if you do any of those when I show you the next verse. Ready? We'll just let the word of God speak for itself. Proverbs 21.19 says, better to live in a desert. <laughs> better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and nagging wife. May the word of God be with us at all times. <laughs> Look, this is a verse just, just about wives, but I think it's safe to say that ladies, 
Okay, you can write the same verse about a husband. So I brought my own translation of this verse right here. It's called the New Father Anthony Translation. And it says, better to pluck your eyebrows out with a rusty pliers than live with a man who will constantly pick you apart for everything that you do. So it goes both ways, okay? Both ways right here. But the point of the verse is this, that nobody wants to be around a criticizing person. Nobody wants to marry one. No one wishes their kids were like one. No one wishes they were more like one. So because of that, we need to address this issue of criticism. We don't want to be a fault finder. We don't want to be the insecure, the uninformed, the finger pointer, the Pharisee guy, you did this wrong, the, 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 the child of the devil who is the accuser of the brethren. We don't want to be that guy. Let's talk about the other extreme, what we do want to be. We don't want to be fault finder. What we want to be is grace giver. We want to be grace givers. We talked about in the first week of this series how the goal is to hit the mark, okay? And sin, we said anything which misses the mark is sin. So our goal is to hit the mark. So our goal is not just to minimize, not to just, you know, not miss it by so much or not miss it by a really big deal. Like I told you, if you drown in 100 feet of water or 50 feet of water or 20 feet of water, either way you drown, it makes no difference. Like if you mix, miss the X marks the spot by 10 feet or by 20 feet or 100 feet, it doesn't make a difference. We're going for the mark. We're trying to play offense, not just play defense. And we are trying to be proactive and intentional about not just avoiding criticism, but giving grace with our words. Look what St. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. He says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. That's the negative side, the avoiding criticism, the defense. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, here you go, that it may impart grace to the hearers. That's our goal. Our goal is not to avoid criticism. Our goal is to impart grace to our hearers. I'm raising the bar. I'm not just saying don't hate. I'm saying love. I'm not just saying don't murder. I'm saying help. I'm not just saying avoid criticism. I'm saying impart grace with your words because this thing right here is a powerful tool and it can kill, but it can also give life. Whenever Jesus spoke, for sure he never criticized, but he didn't just stop there. He found a way in every circumstance to impart grace. The Pharisees would come and they'd say, this person sinned. And Jesus would always come full of grace and truth, grace and truth, grace and truth, always the both. So he would speak truth. He would say, yes, this person did sin. Then he would find a way to inject grace in there. He'd find a way to bring the goodness and compassion and grace of God and impart the grace to his hearers. He didn't just stop with not criticizing. He imparted grace. There's a story in John chapter eight, you probably heard it before, about a lady who was caught in adultery, caught in the very act. Like the ultimate, like, remember those like Southwest commercials, like wanna get away? Like that's this lady. Like she was caught in the act and she was dragged out probably by her hair, wearing nothing, probably just trying to grab a sheet to cover herself as the bad guys dragged her out of the house. They took her out full of shame. Of course, they left the man, okay? We don't care about the man. They want to judge the woman. They took the woman and they brought her in the middle of the, of the town square. They put her right in the middle and they brought a circle around her and they were pointing fingers and they were shaming and they were, they were judging and it was just the worst, 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 worst that you could possibly imagine. And they picked up stones to stone her. And then Jesus walked on the scene and they asked Jesus, 
Look at this lady who sinned. Jesus said, truth? Yes, she sinned. Can't deny that. But he found a way to impart grace. He got rid of the bad guys. Okay, he got down on, the, on, his, on his knee right next to the lady, okay, and he wrote something in the sand. Okay, and what the, we don't know exactly what he wrote, but the, the biblical scholars tell us okay, that, that most likely what he wrote is he started to write the names of the people. Okay, so like all these people are judging this lady. He wrote their names. And next to their names, he wrote their sins. Okay, and that's why when Jesus started doing that, the people were like, uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna just walk over here now. <laughs> and they all kind of dropped their stones because he said, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. He said, yes, she sinned. I agree, she sinned. And whoever has no sin, cast the first stone. See how that, see, he, truth, but he found a way to impart grace and he one by one walked away. And then he didn't just leave. He could have just left and just said, you know what? Everyone said, Jesus, save this lady's life. Thanks be to Jesus. But he didn't just leave. He got down with the lady. He grabbed her by the hand. And he looked her in the eye. And he said this. When Jesus raised himself up, saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Where's the accuser, the fault finders? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How do you think the lady left this day? How do you think she felt? You see how he didn't just avoid criticism, but he imparted grace. Her life was never the same after this. I bet you she looked at the world in a different way after this moment. That before this day had started, she was living a certain way. But by the end of this day, night and day, why? Because Jesus didn't just not criticize her. He used his mouth as an opportunity to impart grace. And it wasn't just this lady. He did the same to the Samaritan woman, the woman by the well in John chapter four. He said, lady, everyone here judges you. I know you're just thirsty. And I know if you just had the right water, let me tell you about the water. You drink this water, you'll never thirst again. Imparted grace. He did the same with Zacchaeus, the tax collector, bad guy, hiding up in a tree. He imparted grace. He said, Zacchaeus, I wanna to come to your house today. He did the same with his disciples. The, 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 the ragamuffin, ragtag, like the bad news bears, of disciples in the day, always stumbling upon each other, messing things up and getting each other's way. And he always imparted grace to them. And he does the same with you and me, doesn't he? Doesn't he do the same thing with me and you? Like we wouldn't be here today if it was just, he doesn't criticize me. The reason that we're here today is he gives us grace. He doesn't focus on our faults. And we got lots of faults. I got no shortage of faults that Jesus could say, and you got to do this, Father Anthony, and you got to do this. I got no shortage of them. I got no shortage of process improvements needed right here. That's not what he focused on. He imparts grace. I love this verse. In John chapter 6, verse 63, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. The words that I speak to you are life. Let me ask you a question and be honest. Be honest with yourself. Again, I'm looking each one in the eye right now. Be honest with yourself. Would your family say this about your words? Would your wife say this about your words when you come home from work? Would your husband say this about you, when you when, at the end of a long day? Would your kids say this about you? Would your coworker say this about you? Like, be honest. Easy to justify, it's their fault. Irresponsible, lazy, no good. I'm just trying to help them. What would your family say about your words? That they give life? or they take life. Jesus knew the power of words. 
You know that every time you open your mouth, you're either healing or hurting. You're either cutting or you're soothing. And it's time for us to realize the same thing and do something about it. Once upon a time, this is a true story, but it's not my story, but it is a true story. Another pastor um, shared this story one time. It was this pastor who lived in a kind of a rough area. Not very rough, but I mean, semi-rough. And, and he had a, his heart was always for children, okay, who were like either abandoned by their dads or had absentee dads, okay? And apparently there was quite a, a, a number of them in the area that he served in. So he had a, a heart for these kind of kids, all right? And he would do whatever he could for these young men who didn't have like role model dads, okay, or absentee dads, and he would do his best to take care of them. And oftentimes he would invite them to spend the weekend at his house with his wife, with his kids, mentor them, you know, take them to their football game or soccer game and bring them to church. And one time he tells a story about there's a particular 10-year-old, a particular 10-year-old who was in a bad state. And he heard about this guy and his dad was, was everything you wouldn't want in a dad was this guy's dad. And he heard about this kid, so he said he invited him to come. And those who knew the kid said to him, Pastor, you don't understand. This kid's trouble. He said, what's the trouble? He said, this kid lies. Like if this kid's mouth is moving, 90% chance it's a lie. This kid will steal from you. This kid will fight with your kids. This kid will disrespect. He'll talk back. Like this kid is, is, is a problem. Don't invite him in your house. This kid is a problem. Pastor said, bring him kid comes over, okay, the day to spend the weekend at the guy's house. Pastor sees him at the door, sticks out his hand, shake the kid's hand. Of course, the kid just kind of looks and whatever and sticks out his hand, but the pastor shakes his hand. Says, it's nice to meet you, young man. And he says, you got a, he wasn't 100% honest here, but that's okay. We'll talk about lying to you. Okay. He says, you got a, wow, you got a, a firm handshake there. That's a, that's a strong handshake, young man. That's an impressive handshake. And the kid's kind of looking like, and he says, you must be a strong young man. You're a strong young man, aren't you? And the kid's like, yeah, I guess. And the pastor's like, no, 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 no. That's not how young men speak. Young men don't say, uh, I guess. Young men say, yes, sir, and no, sir. Are you a young man? Yes, sir. That's how you do it, young man. You're a strong young man, aren't you? He says, yes, sir. And then he says to him, and I like the way when you speak to me, you look me in the eyes. That's what a young man does. That's a polite thing to do. Like, you're, you're not just a strong young man. You're a polite young man. I appreciate how you look me in the eyes. You're a polite young man, aren't you? He says, yeah. I mean, yes, sir. And all of a sudden, the kid started to perk up a little bit. And this is the way he kept talking to him. And then he said this. He said, you know, he pulled a pull. This is a pastor move right here, okay? Only pastors can do this, okay? He said, you know, as a pastor, we have spiritual gifts, and I have the spiritual gift to sense greatness. Have you ever met anyone who could sense greatness before? And the kid's like, no. I mean, no, sir. Pastor says, well, I have that gift. And I sense a lot of greatness in you. I can feel it. As soon as I shook your hand, looked you in the eye, I can sense that you have greatness. For sure someone's told you that before. And he's like, no, sir. They said, well, I know that you have greatness inside you. And I know that you're going to be a great young man. And the pastor, in his own words, him and his wife, said, in all their years of taking kids in, they have never had a more polite and well-behaved child than this young man. Why? Because they chose to impart grace. 
they chose to use the most powerful weapon they had, their words, to give life and grace to someone who had never had it before. And you can do the same. Who in your life needs a little extra grace? Who in your life needs healing with your words? Who in your life is just getting cut and cut and cut and just needs somebody to stop pointing out the fault and impart grace? What difference could it make if you change the way you speak to and then fill in the name, the, fill in the name? What difference could it make if you change the way you spoke to then fill in the name? I'll ask you an even harder question. What difference could it make if you don't change the way you speak to? Here's the reality. Today's words are creating tomorrow's reality. That's the truth. Today's words are creating tomorrow's reality. Today's words in your marriage will create tomorrow's reality in your marriage. Today's words to your children will create tomorrow's reality with your children. And you have no idea the impact of your words. Let's start on the negative side. You have no idea how your criticism kills your spouse. I'm just gonna be very blunt. I'm just gonna just rapid fire. I'm just gonna go straight, no beating around the bush. You have no idea how your criticism kills your spouse. You have no idea what it does to her self-esteem or his self-esteem. You have no idea what it does to the potential of intimacy and closeness in your marriage. You have no idea what nitpicking and, 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 and finding fault with every little thing. You have no idea what that is impacting your intimacy and your future marriage. You have no idea how little your children feel when mommy or daddy is always belittling them and always telling them what's wrong with them and always telling them how they don't measure up. You have no idea what it is doing to their confidence in themselves and potentially what it sets them on for the rest of the course of their life. You have no idea how foolish and little you look when you constantly criticize everyone around you, when you think that you are the expert on all matters and you think everyone thinks that you're the smartest person, you have no idea how foolish you look and how little you look when you do that. You have no idea what people will remember 17 years from now. I told you a story about 17 years ago, and I still to this day remember exactly what that woman said and exactly where she said it and how she said it. You have no idea who's going to remember what 17 years from now. Let's do the flip side. I always like to end on a positive note. You have no idea what a word of encouragement might do for someone. Like that kid in that story. You have no idea. Someone who's just down on their luck. Someone who's just had a rough time. Someone who's struggling in school, maybe a child in school, a, a friend at work or whatever. You have no idea what a word of encouragement, a pick-me-up. You have no idea what it could do for them, what it could do for the course of their life. You have no idea. Okay, again, I'm going to go rapid repeat right here. Your kid may not get the best grades, may not have the cleanest room, may be kind of absent-minded here and there, but he's a good kid. He loves God, okay? He's honest with, with, with his parents. Like, he cheers for the skins. Like, like, come on, he's a good kid. Why don't you tell him? Why don't you tell him? Why don't you tell him, hey, say, you know what? I appreciate the way you are honest when you could have lied to me about this. 
I love the way you have a compassionate heart. Like, why not? Like, we're very quick to tell them what they're doing wrong. Why not tell them what they're doing right? You're a great kid. I thank God that you're my kid. Not like the neighbor's kid. I'm glad that kid's not my kid. Like, why not? Your roommate eats all your food, leaves the dishes in the sink, takes your shoes, steals your clothes, like whatever it may be she does. Yes, that's bad and that bothers you. But she's like your best friend in the whole wide world. She would drop everything when you need to talk. And she's been faithful for you for so many years. So why not tell her? Like, why not tell her, say, you know what? Thank you for being a faithful friend when I am crazy and just need someone to listen to me. Thank you for not judging me. Thank you for not holding me according to when I'm in my crazy mood. Why not tell her? Your wife may not cook like your mom. She may not be as, as, as motivated as you are to pay down the mortgage. She may forget to leave a light on, like she may leave the light on once or twice. But there's no one better to care for your children and raise your children and care for you. So why not tell her? I thank God for you. I don't know what life would be like in this house without you. I don't know how, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't imagine someone better that God sent to care for me and care for our kids. Your husband may not be the uh, young stallion he once was back in his heyday. Maybe a little wider here and a little lighter up here. But he's your husband. And why not tell him how much you value him and say, you know what? I appreciate you, the way you lead our family spiritually. Yeah, you struggle sometimes to get your underwear in the hamper, like you're a bit close, but you don't actually get in the hamper. Like, I, we can work on that, but hey, you know what? You're a great, you're a great husband. You're a great dad. Like you lead us. You don't, you don't, you don't go out and spend all our money on cars and waste money on dumb things. Like you lead us spiritually and financially. Why not, why not tell him that? Your words have power of life and death. And it's your choice what you're gonna do with them. You're gonna fault find or grace give. You're gonna pick apart or you're gonna soothe and heal. The reason I'm so passionate and confident on this subject is because like I said, I know the power of words. And I wish I could say I know the power of words because I've experienced other people's words, like that lady's words. Like I, I wish that was my story, that I felt the impact of other people's words on me, and that's why I speak passionately. But the truth of the matter is that's not why I speak passionately. It's actually the exact opposite. Because I know that I can sometimes be kind of sharp with my tongue. And I know that God has given me sometimes, and I even shudder as I'm about to even say it, there are times where I have used my tongue to bring harm to people who I love the most. Not through any bad, all the best intention. And sometimes, like God like gives you like a, a realization, like what these words are doing, people's hearts. I don't even want, I don't even like, I don't even like to think about. But you know, because God is good and because God is not a fault finder, as much as he's revealed to me the negative impact of my words, He's also allowed me to see the positive impact as well. He's allowed me to see how the smallest, tiniest word, smallest, tiniest word, which is free, you don't have to pay a penny to give it, can impact someone for the course of their life and maybe even beyond this life. Jesus said this, Matthew 12, 36. I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it, in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, 
by your words you will be condemned. I highlighted the positive part because I don't want to talk about the negative. We talked about the negative and by your words, okay, that's the bad. But I'm telling you, by your words, you'll be justified. And by your words, you can give life. We, let's go here, guys. Pay attention to this part. Pay attention to this part. I'm finishing on this point. Pay attention to this part. We, church, we're disciples of Christ. We're followers of Jesus Christ. That's who we are. We're followers of Christ. We got to be better with our words. Jesus came into this world to give life to everyone, abundant life. And he did it so often through his words. And we're his followers. And we got to do better. We got to do better at giving life to others with our words. He never spoke a critical word. He, in fact, did the exact opposite. Every word he said conveyed grace and compassion and life. And now it's our turn to do the same. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But let us impart grace. Speak only what is necessary for edification. And everywhere we go, every word we say, we have the opportunity to find fault. We will give grace. We will give grace. We will give grace. We'll look for opportunities. We will not just try to not criticize. We will look for opportunities to give grace to our children, to our spouse. Give grace to the guy in the Starbucks. Give grace to the guy who parked too close to you in the Walmart. We will give grace. We will give grace. We will give grace everywhere we go. And we'll be people who look like our master and give life and grace to all those who we interact with. Let's stand for a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, you had so many opportunities to find fault with us. And there's no shortage of things that you could nitpick on us in areas where we fall short. We thank you, Lord, that on a day-to-day, like hour-by-hour, minute-by-minute basis, you're always imparting grace to us. Truth, but always truth seasoned with grace. And we pray that you would help us to follow your example, that you would forgive us, Lord, for our sharp words, and that you would help the exact opposite, our words, to bring life to those who are closest to us and everyone we interact with. We pray these things in the mighty name of your Son, prayers of all your saints. Here says, we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen.